does anyone know uh, what Sika Tani Mafi means? Other than my children. So, We actually, uh, the, we spoke in Wisconsin a few weeks ago, and uh, there was a man in the audience that actually knew. Uh, he was from Sudan, so he had a, a kind of a head start, I guess, in, in knowing Arabic, and actually spoke a lot better than we did. Um, Sikatani Mafi means no other way or no other road. Ile Yesu means only Jesus. And we found this to be the core of what uh, discipleship and what the message of discipleship in South Sudan is all about. So, Now, we, we are not a family that have always dreamed about being missionaries. Uh, we know we have lots of friends that we grew up uh, in our older Christian faith with. Uh, and did training with as a doctor, who did. Uh, they always wanted to go to China as missionaries or South America or somewhere. And we were open to that, but we always found ourselves uh, serving in either inner city of New Orleans or Tulsa, Oklahoma, or then rural America. And uh, we were very content to do that, and we felt like that's where the Lord has us now, and that's where we'll serve. So we were uh, comfortable in a, in a rural practice uh, in, in southern Colorado, and we actually had just purchased a house, and our family was growing. I think we had six children about that time. And it had been a very hard first four years in Colorado because I was the only physician in my practice that was doing obstetrics, and so I was on call 24-7 for about four years straight. So it was very intense. Then the Lord finally brought uh, a group of docs to join me and share the call. And so September 2006, we moved into this house. Uh, I had finally somebody to share a call with me, and we said, wow, Lord, this is like just a different pace, and, and so we were, we were contemplating whether really to build a pool or not, um, because we were, we were debating whether to really hunker down and set down roots and continue with the ministry that he had called us to in, in southern Colorado, and so we said, okay, Lord, before we do the, something like that, let's, let's just ask you, is there anything else that you have for us to do? Are you going to take us in a different direction, or should we proceed with really establishing ourselves here in this place even more. And we'd been there about four years at that time. And about a week later, my friend called on the phone, and he said, would you help us plan this hospital in South Sudan? So I, I say that to, to give you a warning, that if you ask the Lord for direction, be prepared that he'll answer you. Okay, I, I was not, I don't think, fully prepared. And then as we we got ready to go. Of course, we had six children, and soon after that, seven children, and we went on a survey trip, and we found out that the Lord was calling us in that direction. Then we had the obstacle of selling our house. And so, you know, but as my wife shared, one day at a time, we just stepped out in obedience. We didn't see how it would happen, and I realized that I'd never really fully trusted the Lord and let go of all the details to Him until we faced obstacles that we faced in getting to the field. So, I just say that to say don't, don't let um, your, your common sense, if the Lord is calling you, it's okay to follow him. And so uh, we've been blessed in the process of, of stepping out and going to South Sudan. So why did we go? Uh, we went because his word says to go make disciples. And uh, I was reminded of a, a sermon that I heard a few months ago, just recently. The Lord had me see my notes uh, in my Bible you know, he says, go make disciples. And then he goes on and, and talks about a lot of things that we all know in the Great Commission. But really, he's saying, go make disciples. And he says all those things that it involves. And then I think 
the other part of that sentence is, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And you look back at, and we're not going to look at these scriptures this morning, but you look back at, at uh, Joshua, no, Numbers 14 and Joshua 1, he says virtually the same thing to the Israelites. He says, go into the promised land and I will be with you. Now, at first, they don't, they don't believe him. They believe the, the negative spies report and they don't go in. But then later they do. And uh, so it's, it's the same message echoed throughout time from the Lord, that go and he'll be with us. And so people often ask us, do we feel safe in South Sudan? And well, no, but I don't feel safe in inner city Milwaukee either. You know, we were just there a few weeks ago and it, was, it felt a little less safe than, than being in South Sudan. But it really means, you know, where the, the Lord tells me to go, he says he'll be with me. So that's where the safest place is. That's where I feel safe. So we went because he says that in his word. Now, medically, maternal mortality is one in seven. So any woman has a, a, a one in seven chance of dying because of childbirth at, at some point in her life. Um, and these numbers are really true. We'd been there just, um, well, we'd, we'd had the hospital open about two months. And we just started doing deliveries. And we, um, we had a, a string of things happened that really shook me up. We, we had a lady brought in 8, 8 a.m. one morning. She delivered at home. Her placenta was not coming out, and so they brought her into us, and she had a lot of bleeding. And we, we, got, her, we got her set up in, in the delivery area and um, got the placenta out, and then my nurse said, I, I, can't get a, I can't get a blood pressure. And I looked up and realized the patient had just died. And then later that day, we had a lady that was about 30 weeks pregnant, and her, her baby suddenly died inside. And, um, and then we had to get her induced to deliver the baby. Well, a little while into it, she started acting very strange and very much in distress, and then she, um, she ended up passing away as well. So in, in a space of about 36 hours, I, we had lost two mothers and one baby. Now, in, in 10 years of practice in, sou- in southern Colorado, I had never lost a mother in childbirth. And so that was really, uh, really rocked our world and realized that these numbers are not just numbers on the page, but it's reality. And it, and it, it feels very weighty when you're there. And uh, the people there have, have accepted death, although they still very much mourn it, but there's almost a fatalistic uh, view of death. And so those numbers are, are very real. And I realized I wasn't on a, the same playing field that I was in the West that even though I might have the knowledge that I did in, in Colorado, I didn't have the resources. And the people would not come in when they needed to as well because their understanding of, of what they needed uh, was different. Ultimately, we went because of obedience. Like I said, uh, we asked him, he answered, and then we had that choice before us, do we obey him? And um, w- we did, although it was scary. It really is scary. Uh, but when we step into those scary places and we know we're following him, that's the, the times that we see him work the most. So let's look in his word. If you'd turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and starting in, <coughs> in verse 60. said, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. 
who can listen to it? And then let's, let's skip on down to 66 as well. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So what I want to look at this morning is what makes a disciple and what is involved with discipleship. And these are some of the lessons that the Lord has impressed on us over the last few years in, in South Sudan as we have struggled personally with, okay, Lord, we followed you here to South Sudan. Now, what's this going on around us? And then also, as we, just a few steps ahead of our, our South Sudanese brothers and sisters, try to disciple them and, and to, to lead them, um, what are the things we're learning and what do they need to know? So, so this, this, this hard teaching, what, what is it? And I think we look back to, to the title that I, that I had there, Sikatani Mafi Ile Yesu, that Jesus is the only way. John 14, 6 says that, that he says that I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This, uh, this picture is, is the road into Uganda. This is how we, the only way for us to get out of the country of South Sudan heading south to Uganda where we get our supplies. And as you can see, it's a difficult road, and this is actually a, a, a tamer part of the road. Uh, there's, there's other pictures that it's difficult to get pictures of that because there are, are, are semi-trucks all over the road and there's no way to get through or you have to go around a, a makeshift path. Um, so it's, it's a very difficult road. Um, and, and that's the truth of, of, of life for the South Sudanese as well, that following Jesus and just living their lives is very hard. And, and so we've looked at this. And, um, you know, it's, it's only if God draws us. So what, what, did, what did John record here? What was this hard teaching? Well, if we look back, the, the thing that really got them upset, we have to look back a little bit in chapter 6. If we go back to uh, verse 48, and this goes along well with, with uh, it being communion, taking communion today as well. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna <coughs> in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the Jews began to argue, and <coughs> he goes on, <coughs> verse 58, he says, This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, I think this was upsetting to the Pharisees because they wanted... Uh, to just to follow a set of rules. It, it's always simpler to, um, to just follow the, the set of rules. I, I'm reading through a book uh, someone gave to me recently, The Prodigal God by, by Tim Keller. You know, and he talks about the elder brother. Uh, you know, he, he, he wanted to, to please the father by just uh, by, by following the rules. And the Pharisees, likewise, they, they wanted, okay, we want to just be able to follow a set of rules, and, and that'll be good enough for us. But Jesus is a stumbling block for them because he says I it's not about following the rules. It's about me. And you, you can't come to the Father unless you come through me. And, and that involves giving your whole life to me. And so what we find in, in, in South Sudan is that um, 
people want to not depend entirely on Jesus, um, which isn't unlike here in the U.S., is it? Uh, that we, we want to, yes, have Jesus available to us, but we don't want to depend on him fully for everything and really cast our lot in with him. And so one time we had this um, <coughs> older woman and, and a grandmother in South Sudan is called an abuba. And so abuba rejoice was uh, in our hospital for about six days. She, elderly woman, quite ill, but she was getting slowly better and, and we knew it would be a slow road and she was not uh, that well, but, but we could keep her um, and, and improve her. But after about six days, the family came to me and said, we'd, we'd like to take her out for prayers. And what we know that has come to mean is that they take them back to the village, they call the witch doctor, they call the tribal uh, leaders, and they, they do some prayers. There might be a little Christianity mixed in there, uh, but there's a lot of witchcraft, there's, there's calling on evil spirits to, to do something for them, and, and um, it's not a good thing. And we've seen this happen before, and we've seen uh, people not make it. Uh, they, they, they get sick and they die. And in this situation, that one of the younger generation uh, guys I talked to, I said, you know, you really have to choose. You have to submit yourself to the care that we're pr- providing here for her. We, we are seeking Jesus' help to take care of her. Or you need to go and, and, and do that way. But you can't go back and forth. Because we see that a lot. People will go out, and then they'll bring them back, and then they're sicker than they were before, and then we play catch-up. And so he said, yes, yes, I understand. Okay. And so he went and talked to, the, to the, the clan again, and they came back the next day, and they said, no, we, we have to. Even the younger generation was, was starting to grasp, okay, we need to, to follow Jesus completely. Um, the, the elders in the village prevailed and said, you know, no, we need to take her out for prayers in, in the village. And they did, and within a day or two, she had, she had died. So that's, that's the hard teaching, that, that Jesus is the only way, and we can't keep going back to our old ways of doing things. Now, the, the fact that, that God will draw, will draw people is a freeing thing to us as we go and make disciples, because we realize it's not entirely on us. God is going to draw who he's, he's going to draw. So what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? And these are some of the things that, that we have discovered as we encounter these things. I'm like, what, what's going on, Lord? You know, this is not what I expected. This is much more difficult than I expected. And then as, as we look in his word and as we're struggling through these situations, I realize, oh, no, he, he told me it would be like this. And I think that's an important message for, for us in the in the Western church as well as in South Sudan, that these things are part of following Jesus. And if you, they happen to you, then that's a marker, actually, that you're on the right track. You're on that, that narrow road. You're, on that, you're, you're in that hard teaching. So what is it? One of the things, if we look at 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, going back to verse 10, actually, 2 Timothy 3, uh, verse 10 to 12, Paul is writing uh, to Timothy. He says, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, and Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, 
all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And verse 12 again, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That, that verse really, really stuck out at me as we were in South Sudan. Like, I, I, I don't remember dwelling on that verse much before, but that's a, that's a promise of the Lord. He said, if, if, you, if you follow me and you want to live in me, you will be persecuted. And, and that sounds like, oh, that's not good news. But the reality is, if you do follow him, you're going to be persecuted. And we found ourselves in situations where, okay, we're laying our lives down to try to, to serve the people in this country. And instead, we're getting fined by the government because we have one medicine that's expired. Or we are um, getting harassed by the family because their loved one didn't get well as quickly as they thought they would. Um, and, and it's like, and other things that happened as well, where people say things about you that are not true. And when I look at this and say, but l- the Lord said this would happen. This isn't to be, uh, it's not a surprise. Then, then I realize, okay, we can go on here. Uh, so it's actually an encouraging thing. Now, th- and suffering in and of itself is not the, the, the goal, and it's not, a, it, it's not a great thing. But then I read in Romans 8, you turn to Romans 8, uh, verse 16. This is where the encouragement, wherever we see suffering, we see, s- we, we see um, joy and glory along with it. So that's, that's where the promise, the good part of the promise comes. He says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So that's the good part, that, uh, that with suffering comes joy and comes glory. Now, one of the other things that, that a, a follower of Jesus will experience that we don't often talk about or promote, maybe, is, is waiting. And, and I think this is often where these disciples will turn away uh, like I- in our story in John 6 where, where a lot of these disciples turned away because the teaching was too hard and maybe they didn't see the end result that they wanted and, and so they, they were tired of waiting for what the Lord had promised. Um, but he does say that that's, that's part of it. So if we look at Psalm 27, 11 to 14, he says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Now, we uh, often found ourselves in that situation in, in South Sudan where we were, we were waiting, and it was difficult, and I was very often tempted to despair, uh, and I realized I had that choice before me to despair or trust. Uh, one day we were, we had been uh, working very hard. It was about three months before we left, and we had a woman come in, uh, been in labor for four days at home, and she finally came in from the village to the hospital, and I put the ultrasound on, and I looked. The baby was not alive anymore. Uh, but more disturbing was the baby was not inside the uterus anymore either. Now, this came at a time when we were extremely short-staffed, and we had lost several because of 
government regulations that we had to let them go. Other ones had gone for a higher-paying job. Others were on leave. Uh, uh, I think our pharmacist's brother had been killed in, in fighting up in Jonglei State and had to leave. So all of a sudden, we were out without much of our staff, and there was just about three of us trying to manage the hospital. And we looked at each other and said, you know, we'll be okay. We're, we're getting by as long as we don't have to do a C-section. Well, this lady then came in. Uh, so whenever we found ourselves kind of at the end of our rope, and we, we kind of put that out there to the Lord, you know, okay, Lord, we can do this as long as this doesn't happen. Well, he was faithful to then push us beyond our human abilities and beyond the end of our rope so that we, we clearly were depending on him. And that, that is a blessing, although in the midst of it, I just want out of it. You know, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to despair in the midst of it. So this lady uh, needed to have a C-section quickly so that we would have a chance of saving her life. So we, we did the C-section. The baby had ruptured out the back of her uterus and uh, with a lot of difficulty making some incisions in order to access the baby and using forceps to pull the baby out, we got the baby out. But then I looked at this, this uterine rupture, this tear down the backside of her uterus. Um, I had never had such a complex things, thing to repair on a uterus before. I'm a family practice doc that's done obstetrics. I'm not an, an OBGYN that's done many years of surgery. So I looked at this and I said, Lord, I, I don't know what to do. You know, she probably needs a hysterectomy, but I can't, it's not good to do that in this culture without talking about it first. And, you know, I, I just... And we were exhausted. It was five in the morning. Uh, we had, I only had one assistant to help me. Usually we have two. But I, I just said, Lord, what do I do here? And I, I heard him say, just do what you can. Just put it together as best you know how. And I'll take care of the rest. And, and, and I, I really felt like this is okay. I'll do that, Lord. You know, I, this is beyond me. I don't know what to do, but... Um, Slowly, we started to repair the uterus um, as best we could, trying to avoid the big blood vessels and, and everything right near there and, and the bowel that was trying to get in the way. And uh, finally, we got her closed up as best as I could. Um, and she recovered after the surgery um, as well as any other C-section. Uh, within five to six days, she was up walking, walking around and uh, ready to go home. Um, saddened by the loss of a baby, but she was alive to grieve and to move on with life. And um, so I, I just praise God that, that he is able to do beyond what I think I can do. And as I wait on him, I see that. So Now, laying down your life is, we won't look at those scriptures, but in, in Luke 14, he talks about, you know, anyone that, that's going to follow me has to lay down his life. And I often think of that as, as being willing to die for Jesus. Um, but... I think that's part of it, uh, but I think that's probably the easier part of it um, because then we get to be with Jesus and we don't have to work anymore. So, But I think the harder part of it is laying down our life that we have, the picture of life for ourselves that we have, our agenda, if you will. I think that's the harder part. And, and, and for us, you know, I think we were ready to move on with life in the U.S. and we were happy about that. Uh, but he said, no, I'm going to actually send you to South Sudan. And we actually, my wife and I both speak Spanish. Um, her father is from Cuba. Uh, we, we love the Latino culture and the food. We also love the food in, from Asia, you know, Thai food, 
all sorts of things. But when's the last time you said, let's go out to Sudanese food tonight, you know? Uh, you haven't. Although last week I, I said that, and my brother-in-law looked it up, and he later that day he said, actually, there is a the South Sudanese food restaurant in, in Dallas. And I said, okay, all right, you got me. But um, case in point, you haven't probably gone out for it. Um, so it, it was a process of laying all those things aside and saying, okay, Lord, you, you want us to go at age 40 to a place we've never been, to a culture we don't know anything about, uh, learn Arabic um, when it's 110 degrees in the afternoon, sit there and learn Arabic at age 40. Okay, all right, we'll, we'll do that. Um, but it, it wasn't pleasant. So, um, But there's a great joy in, in doing those things and, and walking with him. So I want to go back to, to John... 6, and try to get at the last thing that Peter said. At the end, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, I grew up in the Lutheran church and, and hearing this scripture in the liturgy, and um, I, I love uh, the liturgical church for that, although at the time when I was eight years old, I didn't understand that it was scripture. But when I read it later and said, oh, this is scripture, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Um, it really stuck with me. And we look at it and so I wonder now, well, how did he and the other disciples come to that point of believing and knowing that he was the Holy One of God? Why didn't they turn away like the other disciples when they heard these really difficult teachings? Because surely they had, you know, false ideas of who Jesus was and what he was coming to do. But I think the answer comes um, early in the next chapter, in chapter 7, verse 17. He's, Jesus says, If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. So he says, If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching. Now, in, in, in medicine nowadays, the big push is for us to only do what's shown by evidence, okay, evidence-based medicine. And I'm sure like in, in the aeronautical industry, same thing. You only do what you know works, okay. You, you, when you know it, then you do it, okay. But Jesus flips that around. He says, if you do it, then you'll know it. So he says, you have to step out before you know and actually do it. And in the process of doing it, then you will know for sure that he is from God and that what he says is true. And so I think that's Peter and the other disciples, right from the start, when, when Jesus called Peter, he was fishing, and he said, cast your nets out that other side. Now, now Peter was already, was already tired. They'd fished all night, cleaned his, was cleaning his nets, and he, he said, okay, I, like, I don't doesn't make sense to me, Lord, but I'm going to do it. And he did, and he, and he saw that what Jesus said was true. So I think that's the key, is that as we step out in obedience, that we, we come to know who Jesus is more and that what he says is true. So question to you today is what will you choose? Um, don't worry, n none of our children were, were harmed in the, the taking of this picture. Um, this is given. She was harmed later. She had a head injury, but not from this incident. Uh, there was a... It was only a couple feet down from there. This is in Kenya. Um, but what will you choose? A as you're, you're faced in these situations like we, we were, I know all of us are faced uh, with those situations where 
difficult things come, and I don't think it's important whether God caused them, God allowed them, Satan caused them, but the, diff- the important thing is, what is my response going to be? Am I going to trust in God more that, okay, God can handle even this, or am I going to despair and say, I, I give up, Lord, I can't do this, this is too much, you- you've put too much on me. So that's the choice. And are you going to turn back from following him, or are you going to lay down your life, your agenda, and go on with him because you know who he is. So what is he calling you to do now? And as he gives you little bits of this is what I want you to do, if you step out in that little bit, you may not understand the whole plan he has for you, but as you step out a little bit, uh, like Peter, you'll begin to understand who he is. And then he'll give you more. You'll understand more as you obey. I want to I shift a little bit to kind of more of the, the personal experiences we have in South Sudan. Uh, this is our, our mission as a family. It's to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and strengthen his church through medical care and education, discipleship, and loving the people of South Sudan as a family. So we've been there now two years on the ground, and we've been seeking what he has for us in that. One of the things that we found first that we needed to do was, was to learn the language. Uh, a lot of people do speak English there if they've been to school, but a lot of people haven't been to school. So we found that, that learning the trade language, Juba Arabic, has been really important. Uh, this is us with our, our language tutor, uh, Kajia, and um, it's a very humbling process to, at over age 40, for us to sit down and, and, and start to learn another language. Uh, because when you learn another language, you sound like a baby in that language. You sound like a toddler. And we all know when, you know, even our kids say things that aren't quite right grammatically or the right word choice or they say it, pronounce it funny, we laugh at them, right? And it's cute. Well, when you're a white person, a 40-year-old white person in Africa, they'd still laugh at you. But it's not as cute, especially when you're the one being laughed at. So um, it's a very humbling process. But in that and, you know, our, our sending agency pioneers really feel strongly about this, that that's a part of communicating the gospel is being willing to learn the language, being willing to humble yourself and enter that culture as a child um, and lay down your life for them and learn the language. And so it really, we've found with a hostile culture, South Sudan has been at war for 56 years or so, and finally they have have a few years of peace, uh, but even then it's tenuous, um, that... They're, tr- they're traumatized. There's like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, amongst most of the people in the country, except the very young. And, and, and so it's very difficult. But when we, we try to speak their language, it's like the walls melt and come down. And so we are really, um, we see that the, the wisdom in that. But it's a very humbling process for us as well. One day I was, I was in the wards and doing postpartum rounds on, on people that have had just delivered and I was trying humor on a little bit because humor is kind of a more advanced part of the language. But I, you know, I felt like I was conversing pretty well with them and I could kind of make some small jokes and they were laughing. And I said, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm finally getting this. You know, I must be, my language is really increasing. And then I went to the next ward and one of my nurses was sitting there uh, writing on the chart. He looked up at me and he said, oh, Dr. Perry, I see you, you have a new name tag. And then I looked down and I had our cleaner's name badge on instead of my own, so I was an African woman. Uh, and, then I, and then I proceeded to, uh, to dump my water bottle, I think, and it spilled on my pants. It looked like I had 
urinated on myself. So it, it, God's very faithful to humble us if we're willing to do that. So part of that is learning the language. So at times we, we do share the gospel directly through preaching and praying in the, in the church. Um, we live on a compound, uh, has a hospital, uh, our home, a school for about 450, 500 children, a primary school. Um, uh, orphanage with 155 children, and then the church uh, is right in the midst of that as well. So we're a part of the, the daily life of all those things to some, some degree. But mostly, uh, our role is just living out our lives uh, and living the gospel. Uh, this is baby Elizabeth, uh, named for my wife, uh, and she goes by Mama Elizabeth there, because you're identified by your, your children and the fact that you have children there. And this uh, was the eighth child of our South Sudanese pastor at the local church. And he's a very strong proponent of delivering in the hospital. So maternal mortality is the worst in the world in South Sudan. The way it's been shown, it's been proven that you can reduce maternal mortality is by having a delivery in the hospital, a supervised delivery. So our pastor knows that. And even though his wife had had seven children at home, no complications, he said, she's going to come to the hospital. Well, so she did, and I said, oh, this will be an easy delivery. You know, by noon, she'll have the baby and go home later today. But at noon instead, my, my partner, uh, another Aus an Australian physician that's working with me, Dr. Poole, he, he came and said, I think we need to take her to C-section. I went and looked, and the, the monitor showed that baby was having decelerations and was under distress. So we, uh, we took her to C-section, and she... The baby came out just fine. Baby was, was healthy and happy. But mom had a lot of bleeding. Now, we later found out that she had anemia quite severely beforehand as well. And so after the surgery, she had lost a lot of blood. She never woke up. Uh, we transfused her two to three units of blood that night. Elizabeth was ready to donate some. Her husband donated a unit. And um, we've established the first blood bank that we, we know of in South Sudan to deal with situations just like this where we need a lot of blood quickly. So we did all of that, but still she wasn't waking up. Still she was in, in shock. She, her heart rate was fast. Blood pressure was low. And so we, we were praying that night. And I don't usually get a burden to pray that a, a patient will live and will get better as much as I had in that situation. I felt like this was perhaps a, a, a spiritual battle that was going on for her life. And I knew the impact of if our pastor would lose his wife and be left with eight children and no wife and trying to pastor this church. So we prayed very much that night, and, and um, we got up the next morning. Elizabeth cut her some flowers and went and was the first person that went in and visited her that morning, and um, she opened her eyes, and she did pull through and make it, and uh, her baby is healthy and happy now, and she's back an active part of the church uh, even more so, and now they're living on the compound uh, to, to help supervise the older boys. So we, we just praise God for, for doing that and showing his power in those situations. So we're involved in, in the local church as a family, and our children participate in the worship team there, and they do uh, some worship dance that they've, they've brought there. Uh, and it's, it's been a real joy to, to, to do that and to encourage and support the local believers as they grow in their faith and deepen their faith. And, uh, and discipleship also involves the whole family. Um, we, for many years, this, this is Olivia, with, um, is that Taylor or Hudson? That's Hudson. Um, this is Olivia with Hudson. And 
these are twin boys that were brought to us after their mother had died uh, at the government hospital um, in childbirth. And <coughs> Olivia had been praying for several years that God would give us boys that would be twins and twins that would be boys. And she'd pray this every night, twins that would be boys, boys that would be twins, and over and over again. And we got a little bit tired of it. And uh, okay, okay, yes, we know you're praying for twin boys. Okay. Well, then the Lord brought them to our front porch, and they had no mother. The father was, you know, his, his first wife had left him. He was very uh, overwhelmed. He said, please take these babies. One of them was quite sick. Uh, they were a little bit premature, very small. And we said, well, what else can we do? The Lord put, the, put this on our hearts many years ago, and uh, we did. We took them in, and we said, you know, clearly we want to, if we take them in, we want to raise them. Uh, we, you know, we, we don't feel like it's good to kind of bounce back and forth between families. So, um, and they said, yes, yes, that's what we want. So we did. And for two and a half months, we raised them and loved them. And they, they were a, a sweet, incredible part of our family. And all of the children bonded with them. But then when we proceeded with the legal proceedings for adoption, um, <coughs> the family saw how healthy the boys were. And some of the initial shock of the loss of his wife had gotten over, he looked at them and said, no, we, we actually want them back. Um, they wanted us to raise them for about five years and then give them back. Um, but we all said, there's no way we can do that. You need to take them now or not. Um, and so it was a really scary time for us. And the Lord gave my wife uh, the, the leading to write these signs all over our house to just trust me. Because we, we were like, this is not what we intended, Lord. Uh, but he said, trust me, it's going to be okay. And then a year later, uh, just four days before we came back to the U.S. in May, we went to visit them in the village, and they were doing very well. They had no memory of us, um, <coughs> but they were healthy, actually healthier than our kids. One of our children had malaria while we were visiting them. They were healthy and happy. Um, but it, it was a difficult thing we would have never done had we known they would be taken from us after two months. I don't know that we would have knowingly go gone into that. But the Lord has used that to open our eyes and others in the community and in the ministry to the possibility of this type of model where usually children are just kind of stuck in the nearest orphanage in South Sudan and raised in this kind of strange environment, not like their culture. But it's kind of opened all of our eyes to say, well, maybe something like this could work. You know, we get these children through the hardest time and then they're back with their biological clan. Uh, and raised in their culture. So it, it's amazing to see what the Lord is doing in that. So, and, um, you know, we're there to, to learn to love the people and just participate in life with them, just uh, do daily life. So often uh, Elizabeth will, will take our children for a walk in the jungle. And yes, it's about 115 degrees often uh, late Saturday morning, uh, not much shade. Uh, but she'll take our, our children out, and 40 to 50 of the orphanage children will come with her as well. And uh, they'll go out for a stroll in the jungle. And they, they crave that family involvement uh, that, that they can have with us. And they all have their friends, and they're, they're friends. They're not orphans. They're children that live at the orphanage that are their friends. And uh, so they, they do life, and when we have free time and they have free time, we come together and, and play and and just enjoy that time together. Uh, marriage in South Sudan is a very different uh, thing. Uh, it's more of a business relationship. Uh, polygamy is common. 
Um, the men don't often treat their wives very well. They are not involved in the care of the children at all. And we feel like part of our role in being there is being an example of uh, a couple that is, is seeking Christ, uh, forgiving one another, not doing everything right, but seeking to love one another and, and lay down our lives for one another. So we feel like that's part of the reason we're there as a family as well. Now the hospital, uh, when we first arrived, uh, in we took a survey trip in 2007, and this is what it looked like. It was just a stand of teak trees. Um, they did have a one-room clinic on the orphanage compound that we practiced out of at first. Um, but then gradually the walls started going up. They had part of the clinic done when we arrived at first, um, but not the whole hospital. So you can see us trying to get into the, the groove of, of practicing there in the partially finished hospital. Uh, we had donated supplies arrive, and we started putting those in place and getting the hospital set up. And then just before we left, this is what the hospital looked like. Um, it's now it's a 25-bed hospital. There's a clinic, um, x-ray, two operating rooms, a lab, and a pharmacy. And this is the inside view of the operating theater, we call it there, operating room. And it, it, that allows us, having that facility allows us to, to fulfill the vision that through medical care, people will come to know Jesus. And that looks, um, largely we focus on maternal care and uh, pediatric care. So we're doing a lot of deliveries, about 50 per month now, and about 10 C-sections per month. And pediatrics, um, we see a lot of malaria, a lot of anemia, uh, diarrhea, dehydration, malnutrition. Uh, we've even gotten into trying to treat some pediatric cancer, uh, Burkitt's lymphoma. So it's just kind of, listening to the Lord and, and what the needs are on the ground and trying to, to step in and, and meet those needs. But all of that is beyond what my partner and I are, are entirely comfortable doing, which gets us back to the point where everything we do is undergirded by prayer because we don't, we don't know what we're, we're supposed to do um, all the time. And the different things that we do, um, rather than just do the, all of the medical care directly ourselves, we realize that once we're gone, others need to continue the work. We don't want the work to stop once we've, we've, we've left. So every day we are training our staff and teaching them. What we found is there, there are a lot of, a lot of good uh, medical training schools in, um, in South Sudan, but not a place for practical education. And so we're, we're involved in that quite a bit and doing more outreach to other clinics um, and collaborating with the government on, on other things. So you can pray with us that, that the hospital, um, pray for our staff because our, our main goal in discipleship is our hospital staff uh, because we are with them the most. So pray that they would, they would walk deeper in their relationship with Jesus. And pray for protection as we advance. Um, you know, there, there's backlashes spiritually and politically against advances um, in, the, in the structure there. So we're, we're currently building a new labor and delivery ward, and I just got an email from my partner this morning that said they have a three 31-week preemies that they're taking care of right now. And um, so we really need that new space, so, so pray that that would proceed well and there wouldn't be any complications. Um, we're also looking to put more housing up for our missionaries and, and our other staff so they can be close to the hospital. So I want you to think about, too, yourself. Um, you know, we, 
we often think about missionaries needing to be either pastors, teachers, or, or doctors or nurses, but there we find in, in running a hospital there in South Sudan, so many things are needed. Uh, we need people to do admin, to manage our staff, do human resource work, um, to do maintenance, electrical, plumbing, everything that's involved in keeping a facility going is so important. So that if you go with a servant attitude, wherever you go, uh, be it to South Sudan or, or any of the other places that, that your church may be involved with, that the most valuable thing is going with a servant attitude, being willing to, to do whatever you are called to do. And so we invite you to come with us, and we, we are, are so thankful for those of you in this church body that, that, have, that have been lifting us up in prayer and supporting us financially so that we can be there, and we so greatly appreciate that. So please pray with us for, for safety for our family, um, for that we would have the resources that we need to. Um, with our, our monthly support is currently about 72%. Um, and there's also special kind of one-time things that we're looking to do to, to be able to continue there long term. So please pray with us and uh, consider also what's next uh, for you. And uh, encourage you to listen to the Lord. And if he gives you a small leading, step out in that and he will, he will take care of you. So uh, as the worship team comes up, let me, uh, let me close us in prayer. Father God, we, we thank you for um, giving us life, and we thank you, Lord, for the work that you are doing in South Sudan. We thank you for the things that you are teaching us about the, the greatness of following you, even when it's, it's difficult and we don't understand what it's all about. We thank you that you are faithful and you have power and you can do uh, more than we can do uh, by ourselves, Lord, if we will only trust you. And Jesus, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this uh, church body, Lord. We pray that they would continue uh, to lift your name up in Anchorage and surrounding areas, Lord, that you would be glorified in their midst. We ask this in your name, Jesus.